Welcome to The Joy Report, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about climate solutions and environmental justice grounded in intersectionality and optimism. Tune in to hear updates on all things climate, social, and environmental justice, explained in a succinct and accessible way by me, Ariel King, an environmental justice advocate and attorney passionate about environmental education. In this episode, we're exploring regenerative agriculture, what it means, where it comes from, and what its role is in decolonizing agricultural systems. Nature has the ability to heal itself if we let it. While many agricultural practices, past and present, have had detrimental impacts on the land, especially coupled with the impacts of climate change like droughts and excessive heat, there are practices that support a more beneficial way to grow food and sustain landscapes. Regenerative agriculture covers a variety of practices, from agroforestry to ecological grazing, permaculture, and others. But the main function is to regenerate how the landscape works. Regenerative agriculture consists of practices and systems that nurture the land and the people who work on it. This holistic land stewarding practice helps increase soil quality and biodiversity in farmland while producing nourishing products. Doing so avoids harm from pesticides and exploitive techniques to the landscape and those working on it. Dr. Lauren Baker of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food explains that, quote, to address accelerating climate change, biodiversity loss, rising food insecurity, and growing inequality, we need to repair the relationship between people and nature. Agroecology, regenerative approaches, and indigenous food ways are a direct response and counterpoint to the dominant industrial food system. The industrial food system, defined by chemicals, concentrated livestock, monoculture, and ultra-processed foods, comes with a cost we can no longer afford, end quote. Historically, food has been used as a way to colonize the body, mind, and physical landscape. As such, while there is no single way to be a responsible and conscious consumer, there are ways we can all work to disrupt systems that cause and perpetuate harm to people and planet. The food system is a powerful place to start. When we have the option to do so, we should all be striving to support groups and engage in practices that care for people and planet. And fortunately, we are witnessing an emergence of mutually beneficial agricultural practices that are deeply connected to the decolonization in the mainstream agricultural system and helping to create indigenous sovereignty and preserve our planet. Traditional pre-colonial food systems were sustainable and regenerative. Indigenous communities worldwide have been farming regeneratively for millennia, and we're continuing to learn and benefit from those practices. As Robin Wall Kimmerer explains in her book Breeding Sweetgrass, quote, old growth cultures like old growth forests have not been exterminated. The land holds their memory and the possibility of regeneration. They are not only a matter of ethnicity or history, but of relationships born out of reciprocity between land and people. End quote. Respectful stewardship of the land is an essential element of ensuring a livable future. 
the Land Back Movement, which we explained a bit during Episode 4, and other efforts to regain land sovereignty have led to an increase in mainstream access to indigenous plants, ingredients, and other natural resources. This movement has also led to an increased understanding for the need to decolonize many of the systems that are deeply woven into the function of modern society. This episode is all about the food system. The CDC's Native Diabetes Wellness Program released a report called Traditional Foods in Native America, which explains that a primary tenet of the global food sovereignty movement asserts that food is a human right, and to secure that right, people should have the ability to define their own food systems. Food sovereignty, especially as it relates to land sovereignty, is a key element to the restoration of landscapes and the preservation of our planet's essential resources. There are numerous organizations and farmers all over the world committed to engaging in regenerative agricultural practices, developing food sovereignty, and sharing their knowledge to counter the harmful practices that exist within mainstream agriculture. Like Regeneration International, the Rodal Institute, the Soil Food Web Institute, and the Indigenous Food Systems Network, to name a few. The author and earth steward Leah Penniman and the team working at Soulfire Farm in upstate New York put it like this. A lot of folks don't realize that almost everything that we consider regenerative and organic agriculture has Afro-Indigenous roots, right? Has anyone ever done a texture by feel soil test before? That's Yoruba, y'all, all All right? Has anyone ever either encouraged worms to proliferate on their farm or actively composted with worms, vermicomposting? Anybody? That's from Cleopatra, 50 BCE. She put out an edict that said that anybody who harms an earthworm would be put to death. Now, mind you, I am not in favor of the state murdering its citizens. However, the fact that she recognized the ecological benefit of the earthworm and had a whole cadre of priests whose full-time study was dedicated to protecting the earthworm says something. Kelsey Ducheneau is a member of the Lakota CO Nation, a fourth-generation beef and cattle rancher, the youth programs coordinator and natural resources director of the Intertribal Agricultural Council, and the owner of the DX Ranch in South Dakota. The Lakota Nation was a great nation which realized all that this land had to offer from the plants which provided medicine and food for us and ways to practice our ceremonies to the animals which it was a home for like the buffalo and the eagle and now the cattle which we were fortunate to raise on my reservation. In her own words, She, quote, helps young people realize that the wide open spaces we call home are not just the middle of nowhere, but instead a place to call home, full of resources and the potential to grow food to feed their families, end quote. I went to a bison farm in central Virginia maybe a few months before the farm started, and I watched a bison cow jump over a five or six foot fence from a standstill and said, okay, this is not, <laughs> I don't have the money to build 10 foot high Jurassic Park fences all over the place. So we decided to go with something a little smaller, a little more reasonable, less dangerous, less wild, and just got into poultry and pork to start with. The problem is that if, if these farms are going to replicate like that, it would have happened already, but it's not because it's, 
too difficult to make a living as a farmer to doing that just for any number of reasons. Um, there's very little historical precedent for that kind of farming to actually work uh, without creating some kind of exploitative relationship with the people who are doing it. You know, if you get away from that and you start to expand and, and actually offer the pie to people, as you scale up, you're able to engage in farming in a way that's less exploitive on people, less exploitive on the landscape. That's the voice of Chris Newman, an Afro-Indigenous farmer who runs Sylvan Aquana Farms in Northern Virginia. When Europeans decided they were going to make a fortune out of the American West and start mining the soil and mining the water out there, that was, that was always the idea. Um, and what's what's interesting about all of that is um, whereas you have African-Americans who are really good at, um, at cash crop and really good at, at market gardening, really good at taking care of soil in order to grow food that people actually want to eat. Um, whereas they're good at that and doing that like an, at, a, at an intensive scale, Native people created these vast food producing ecosystems that were so big and and we're so like and we're so unlike what anybody thought of as a farm that when white people started going west and even when white people hit the east and started like getting into the woodlands and wondering why the understory was on fire and how the trees were spaced so far apart that you could ride a carriage through at a gallop they did not realize that they were on a giant farm that had been deliberately cultivated you know the plains in the american west the tall grass prairie was not an accident that is not a wild state native people were setting fires they were deliberately running herds of bison from one place to the next let's talk about bison bison have been in the news quite a bit over the last year from a recent sighting in big bend national park populations of bison being returned to tribes in Montana, and the successful reintroduction of bison populations in other parts of the United States. Bison have deep cultural and ecological significance. In the early 1500s, an estimated 30 to 60 million bison roamed the landscape freely throughout North America, from Canada to Mexico, and from New York to the Rocky Mountains. As the largest land-dwelling mammal in North America, these giant, powerful grazing animals stand about 5 to 6.5 feet tall, weighing about 1,000 pounds on average. They provided food and sustenance in the form of meat and marrow, and raw materials like bones and tools, hide for clothing and shelter formation and creation. Because of all the resources that could be derived from them, bison formed the basis of the economy for numerous tribes in the Great Plains region. Bison roamed the western and central plains of Texas in large numbers, with four main herds existing within the state. By the late 1800s, after hundreds of years of colonization, in an attempt to cause further harm and eradication to indigenous populations in Texas, and continue westward expansion and industrialization through the Transcontinental Railroad, the bison were hunted and killed to nearly extinction, with fewer than a thousand animals remaining. Only through efforts of indigenous tribes and non-indigenous Texas ranchers over the past 20 years has the number of bison grown in the state. Earlier this year, Five buffalo were reintroduced to Lippin Apache lands in Texas to join their existing herd through a program by the Nature Conservancy, which has given 270 bison back to indigenous nations throughout the country. 
This is the first time in hundreds of years that Lee Pan Apache and Southern Plains Bison have been right here on this land. Restoring bison populations can help restore prairie ecosystems while improving issues of food insecurity and food sovereignty for indigenous communities, while also helping to mitigate the adverse impacts of climate change. My name is Lucille Contreras, and I'm the CEO and founder of Texas Tribal Buffalo Project here in Welder, Texas. The Texas Tribal Buffalo Project is one of many organizations working to restore bison populations. The project is dedicated to healing the generational trauma of the Lipan Apache descendants, as well as other tribes in geographic proximity, with the ultimate goal of returning the bison to Texas. Lipan Apache have lost land, culture, language, as well as kinship with each other. And so as part of that, I believe that we've suffered a lot of generational trauma. I know by being around Buffalo personally, it has helped me in my life. It's helped me and my children be stronger, have more fortitude, be healthier in our minds, body and spirit. And so I want to allow that, afford that opportunity to others. How can we as individuals support farming practices that protect and nourish people while restoring the planet? First, be thoughtful and conscious of how and where you're purchasing your food. When you can, buy local, since it's a lot easier to find out where and how things you're buying are produced. Find a regenerative farm near you. Buy food from them, get to know the farmers, and take advantage of volunteer days. Learn about where your food comes from and different production systems. Help get the word out about the benefits of regenerative agricultural practices. Get involved in a community garden if you're able to. Contributing to greening the place you live, especially in a way that's focused on producing food for your community, is a powerful experience. One great resource to help you find a farm near you can be found by Googling Regeneration International and searching the farm map on their website. We've also linked the website in the show notes, and there are tons of different filters to help you find the right farm for you. Support tribal and indigenous-led agricultural organizations whenever you can. And if you have the means to do so, support organizations focused on developing, expanding, and teaching about regenerative agricultural practices. Finally, spend as much time as you can outside. Build your own relationship with the land around you. Develop an individual relationship to land and the food you eat makes supporting regenerative agriculture and practices a no-brainer. As Robin Wall Kimmerer once wrote, Quote, restoring land without restoring relationship is an empty exercise. It is relationship that will endure and relationship that will sustain the restored land. End quote. Here's some positive climate news you should also know about. On July 28th, the United Nations General Assembly declared access to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment a universal human right. Canada has passed the Select Luxury Items Tax Act, and starting on September 1st, the country will begin imposing a new luxury tax on the sale and importation of high-value cars, planes, and boats. 
Earlier this month, New Jersey's governor signed a law authorizing the State Department of Environmental Protection to buy electric school buses and charging infrastructure. Three $15 million grants will be distributed over the course of three years to at least 18 school districts or bus contractors for the electric buses, with half or more of those grants going to communities that are low-income, urban, or overburdened by pollution. President Biden has signed the biggest piece of climate legislation in American history into law. Among other things, the Inflation Reduction Act will make significant investments in renewable energy, decarbonized transportation, public lands management, and funnel funding toward advancing environmental justice priorities. The San Diego, California City Council has voted unanimously to update the city's climate action plan to include a ban on natural gas from all new residential and business construction. And in the world of Intersectional Environmentalist, we are hosting an Earth Sessions show in Berkeley on August 27th. If you're listening to this episode on the day it airs, there's still time to reserve your ticket if you're in the area. And be on the lookout for an update on when tickets release for our next Brooklyn Earth Sessions show, scheduled for Friday, September 23rd. For a limited time, IE is releasing a bundle of print publications, which includes our first print magazine, The IE Agenda, a copy of our founder, Leah Thomas's book, The Intersectional Environmentalist, How to Dismantle Systems of Oppression, The Intersectional Environmentalist edition of Good Newspaper, plus a free The Future is Intersectional poster. You can order the bundle using the link in the show notes or on our Instagram bio while supplies last. Remember, fighting the climate crisis is a marathon, not a sprint. We need everyone involved in a way that feels right for them, now more than ever. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this episode if you haven't done so already. Tune in next episode where we'll be discussing energy justice. I'm your host, Arielle King, And thank you for listening to this episode of The Joy Report.